Right, well I thought tonight would be a good opportunity for a question time. So if anyone's got questions, we finished the Spiritual Gifts series last time and uh, we're not going to move on to another series just yet. So uh, a chance if anyone's got any questions they want to ask. Hey, can I ask one? Yes, you can. But I had it last time and then you finished and went off on a sort of a six month series. Alright. So oh, Getting quick, Belinda. Yeah. <laughs> it's about judging. Right. It's not judgment on that. Judging things. Hmm. When does judging things biblically turn into being critical, mm. which is wrong? And how do you know whether when you're saying something about whatever it may be, another church, a person, a so-called Christian, be it they, you know, you might think they're not a Christian and you're talking about it. Is that being critical? Is it judging? <coughs> mm. What's, you know, because every, I'm sh loads of people do it. You talk to them, and I do it, and you say something, and then you say, but I'm, I'm not judging, you know, and when is judging not judging? Yeah, right. Okay, that's 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 quite a good question. Uh, let's let's start off. Go to Matthew. And the other bit was everyone. Sometimes when they hear you, they say, um, "Well, you should take the log out your own eye before you point out that in someone else." <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> right. Okay. We'll find uh, now. Then where's the where's the bit that I want? Matthew. Now is it chapter five or is it chapter six? Ah, oh, chapter 7, Matthew chapter 7, alright? Now let's actually read these verses first, alright? This is Jesus speaking, he says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and the measure you give will be the measure you get. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, when you've got a verse like that, judge not that you be not judged. And from this and other verses, uh, Christians, are uh, if you say something that is implying that there's something wrong with someone or something. What they tend to do is to say, it's not for us to judge, all right? And that this verse tends to be hooked out and used in a much wider sense than Jesus actually intended. Uh, go into Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, and chapter 5 and there's um, at the end of chapter 5 if you go to verse 11 you have the section where Paul is dealing with the principle <coughs> that there are times when if you have someone in your church who is claiming to be a Christian and indeed might be but is living morally in willful sin you know that morally they're all wrong okay and refusing to repent then Paul says to them, you've got to put them out of the church until they repent. Now in verse 11, he says, I wrote to you 
not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or robber, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? I, he's saying, because what, was hap what had happened was, they had got confused by something Paul had written in a previous letter to them. And they thought that he had said that they weren't to have anything to do with anyone who was immoral or an idolater. And, uh, and Paul's writing here to say, no, I didn't mean non-Christians. You know, it doesn't matter what your non-Christian friends do, because they're not claiming to follow Jesus. But you mustn't have anything to do with Christians who claim to be following Jesus whilst living in a sort of immoral way. So he says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders, I non-Christians, uh, you... Um, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? So here, Paul is telling them that you have got to judge other people. And uh, if you go down into the next chapter, he says, When one of you has a grievance against a brother, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? <clears throat> and what he's dealing with here is the fact that, you know, maybe there'd be a little bit of dicky business going on between, you know, some of the brothers in the church, all right, you know, and they were fiddling, okay, and that when one brother, you know, realised that someone else in the church had done him, they were going straight to the civil magistrates and taking them to court. And Paul's right to say, no, 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 look, you know, don't, don't have non-Christians judge us. He goes on to say, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? So what you've got here is that we've seen in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus says quite clearly that you must not judge. Because if you do, you're going to be judged, all right? So we see that the Bible says that you mustn't judge. And then we turn to 1 Corinthians 5, chapter 5 and 6, and we find that the Bible is telling us that we must judge. All right? Now, is this uh, a contradiction that can't be reconciled? Well, of course it's not. Because we're talking about different kinds of judgment. And uh, we know, I mean, it's like, say, from the Salvation series we did. We saw that when it comes to God's judgment, there are different kinds of judgments. Uh, there's God's judgment on the sin of the world, all right? There's God's judgment on us, his people, as his sons. One day, at the judgment seat of Christ, there's going to be a judgment on our service. So you see, there are loads and loads of different kinds of judgment. So when the Bible says, don't judge, what we've got to do is to ascertain what kind of judgment mustn't we do. And when the Bible says, you must judge, what kind of judgment is it telling us to do? Can you see? So we've got to try and sort it out. And then, in answering the question, make sure that we're not applying the wrong sort of judgment to the wrong situations, but that also we are applying the right kind of judgment to situations as well. Let's go back to Matthew 7, all right? Let's have a look at this one, because from the context of the verses, you'll see precisely what Jesus is speaking about. Now then, judge not that you be not judged. Now, the wrong way of applying these verses is to apply them carte blanche. Now, one of the things that I've found is that with Christians, if you say something 
that goes against something they believe. Um, I mean, sort of take, for instance, uh, I mean, there are churches that do not live in accordance to the Bible. Let's take infant baptism, all right. Now, it is completely wrong to baptise in infants. It's, you know, it's crazy. And in fact, those who do baptise infants, their belief and theology is that, that that baby is born again when it's baptised. All right? Now, that is crazy, and we know it's crazy, all right? And yet there are many, many Christians in churches that do this, and they're good Christians, and they're lovely Christians, all right? But what tends to happen is if you say something against what they're doing, they'll tend to respond by saying, you're judging us, that's wrong, all right? So, therefore, in order to prevent someone saying something you don't like, you can hook this verse out, do not judge, and throw it at them. Now, it's quite interesting. Um, I found, I mean, for instance, there was a time ago when uh, something, someone did something a little bit naughty. And it was one of those situations where had they, well, you know, they have got away with it. But <coughs> if Christians were allowed to do things which are very wrong, and this thing I'm talking about was wrong, well, I'm talking, you know, in, in, I mean, no names and that, but someone who actually lied while he was preaching, all right, and quite a few people knew, all right? Now, I really felt something's got to be done about that, and so I got in touch with certain people by way of drawing them in to be witnesses and to actually approach the person concerned. Now, what was quite interesting is that one of them, who knew full well that this person had done wrong, and they were a witness, all right, they knew that this person had done wrong, um, I got in touch with them and they confirmed the truth of what was being said, that this guy hadn't been honest, all right, and, uh, you know, and I said, well, look, I feel it's right for us to do something about it, and immediately he backed off immediately he backed right off you know he didn't want to know about that he was happy to confirm that this bloke had really done something wrong but he didn't want anything to do with having to actually be the one to do something to put this bloke right and what was quite interesting is that he got in touch with me a bit later specifically uh, to tell me that he was really troubled that I was thinking of correcting this bloke and that it wasn't for me to judge him all right now, what was interesting is quite simply this. He acknowledged that this bloke was in the wrong. He'd lied, okay? He acknowledged that completely. But when I said, right, we've got to do something about this, he backed off saying, we mustn't, we mustn't speak against a brother, we mustn't judge a brother, okay? So what he then he gets in touch with me to tell me this. And in effect, he's telling me it would be wrong for me to do anything about that bloke. All right? Now, here's the total contradiction in a, a situation like that. He is phoning me up to tell me it would be wrong for me to tell this bloke that he was wrong. Can you see? So he's saying, Beresford, you're going to tell this bloke he's wrong. It's wrong for you to do it. You mustn't do it. All right? So he's saying, if I had told that bloke he was wrong, that would be a sin. I'd be judging him. But what's he doing? He's phoning me up to tell me it would be wrong for me to do it. Can you see? Now, what happens is that when you're in a situation, uh, and maybe you speak out against something that's wrong, say infant baptism, all right? That's just one of 
a hundred examples I could hook out of the air. <clears throat> now, when people say you mustn't judge, and I mean, sometimes I've found this, I've said something and people said, it's wrong to say that, it's not for you to judge, you mustn't judge, you're judging us, or something like that. They're saying, you're telling us we're wrong, that is wrong that you're doing it, alright? And you've got the situation, they're saying, I'm telling them they're wrong, they're saying you mustn't do it, alright? So, it's wrong for me to tell them they're wrong, but it's all right for them to tell me I'm wrong to tell them they're wrong. Can you see? <laughs> and that as soon as somebody, as soon as a Christian comes up to you, if you say something that they don't like, even though it's scriptural, when they say to you, you mustn't judge, they are doing to you the very thing that they're telling you, you mustn't do to anyone else. Can you see? Now, can you see how, how clever this is? To hook a verse, thou shalt not judge, to hook it right out of context and to use it as a safety screen whereby we never need to be challenged about anything. Now, can you see how subtle it is? So the next time, if you speak out on an issue and the truth of the Bible is on your side, if people respond to you to say you're judging, your response to them ought to be, hang on, what do you think you're doing? You're judging me. If they're going to say it's wrong for you to point out that something's wrong, well, in doing it, they are pointing out to you that they think that you're wrong. Can you see? They're doing to you the very thing that they're telling you is wrong. Now, can you see the absurdity of that? So what we're seeing is that whatever do not judge means, it doesn't mean that you can never speak against anything that's wrong. And remember, no one has spoken against wrong more than Jesus. Um, yeah, I mean, sort of Jesus, for instance, he, he came on the scene and he saw, you know, everything that was going on in the name of so-called religious orthodoxy, and he slammed it. He slammed it. If you're going to say that we mustn't judge, that it's wrong to judge, if by that you're saying that it's wrong to say that things are wrong, then Jesus is the worst culprit. And, uh, you know, so again, if you speak out against something that's wrong, and someone tells you you're sinning, you're judging, then reply to them, well, my friend's sake, if I'm sinning, what on earth was Jesus doing? Because Jesus was incredibly outspoken against that which was wrong. Now then, sometimes these people, they say, oh, but you're not Jesus. Now, people have said this to me, and I've said to them, you're very observant. Because that's not the point. If Jesus was the only one in the Bible that God used to correct situations, then that would be a good argument. But the point is, no matter where you go in the Bible, the prophets, you know, all the way through, God didn't just correct situations through Jesus. And uh, Jesus was pretty vehement about some things. You know, you, you know, you, you hypocrites and stuff like that. Now, Jesus wasn't the only one who did it. John the Baptist, you brood of vipers. Can you see? So, therefore, what we need to do is to find out what is it that Jesus meant in this passage on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, what I want to show you is it's not so much here that we're dealing with uh, that you mustn't ever judge, but there is a wrong kind of judging, and we can demonstrate what it is. And the key to it lies in that Jesus goes on to say that you mustn't try and get the speck out of your brother's eye if you've got a log in your own eye. Can you see? Now, the principle that's coming over here is that wrong judgment contains certain elements within it. 
For instance, if you, I mean, say somebody was doing something wrong, alright, it is not amiss to correct, alright? But, if you are the type of person who gets your kicks out of correcting people, that would be wrong joke. Can you see? It's not that what you're saying is wrong, the motive is wrong. Uh, I think all of us know what it is at times when you've got it in for someone and they can do no right. Have you ever had a day like that, those of you who are married? You've woken up and throughout the whole day, I mean, yes, we believe in the doctrine of total depravity, but it is possible to do things right sometimes. Have you ever had a day when uh, you've woken up and at the end of that day, according to your spouse, you have not done one thing right? Now, that is wrong judging. Can you see? Because they've got it in for you. Can you see? Whether you're doing something wrong or right isn't the point. They've just got it in for you. That would be an example of wrong judgment. Um, I mean, for instance, say, uh, again, say one day you were really angry with somebody or, you really re or someone had done something to you and you're, at your, you're livid, all right? And you're, you're walking down the road and you see someone perhaps being rude to an old lady and you proceed to pound them into the ground and stick the boot in and beat them up thoroughly because they're being rude to the old lady. Can you see, that would be an example uh, that what would have been okay correction has become an outlet for your own anger and frustration. So the point is that there can be times when uh, correction is needed and someone needs to say something but it can be said from 101 wrong motives, frustration or whatever, that would all be wrong judgment. But the key to this that Jesus is specifically talking about here is that wrong judgment is when you are criticizing people and you are pointing out that there's something wrong with them and having a go at them about it when that same thing is wrong in your own life. Can you see? So that for instance, say there was someone in the fellowship who had a real, pro you know, say, say there was a feud going on between two people, it can happen sometimes in fellowship, there are two people, they're hazing each other, alright? Now a situation like that needs people to draw alongside to those people and say, now look, come on, this hatred has got to stop, alright? But, if you were to draw alongside someone who was hating somebody else to correct them and put them right, and you yourself were hating someone, and out of fellowship with God. That would be sheer hypocrisy, and that would be judgment. Can you see? In the wrong way. Hence, Jesus says, Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now the point is this, there is nothing wrong in correcting if God leads you to do that. There is nothing wrong in speaking out against things, and, and I'm including unscriptural practices within the church. There is nothing wrong in speaking out against those things, assuming that the Bible is truly on your side, as it were. <clears throat> There's nothing wrong in doing that, but what is paramount is that you must ensure that you are right with God at that time. Can you see? There mustn't be a speck, a log, in your own eye. 
if you were going to point a speck out in somebody else's. Now, I'm not saying that this means that, uh, you know, we've got to be totally free of sin before we correct, or for heaven's sake, no one would be able to do it. But the point is, we remain right with God, not by not sinning, I mean, that's the aim, but by knowing that if we have sinned, that we've put that right with God, we've confessed it, and that we've put that right with anyone, any third parties who are affected by that sin. So that is the main thing here that Jesus is actually saying. And the thing about the Pharisees, because remember at this point he's talking to the nation of Israel. The Sermon on the Mount wasn't a sermon to disciples as such. It was a sermon, if you like, to Israel and in particular the Pharisees. And the problem with the Pharisees is that they were incredibly condemnatory people in the sense that they would be the first to point out someone's sins and yet they were totally unwilling to repent of their own sins. Can you see? And it's in this context that Jesus is saying it's wrong to judge. Now there are two kinds of people who speak out against things that are wrong. All right, There are only two types of people who do it. The first type is people who are doing it because God has led them to. Can you see? I.e. a prophetic thrust. And remember, the prophetic thrust is specifically correction to God's people. That's what the prophets were all about. Bringing God's people back to biblical orthodoxy. All right, Bringing them back to be doing what God wanted them to do rather than doing their own thing. So there's a prophetic thrust which is by is correcting God's people when things are amiss. Now, when you've got someone uh, fulfilling a prophetic role in that sense, there are certain things that will be true of that person. All right. The first one will be um, that uh, they don't particularly want to do it. They're doing it because God wants them to do it. The reason they don't want to do it is because it gets them in so much trouble. All right. Uh, do you remember that bit in Jeremiah when uh, you know he's he's sort of saying that um, you know that every time I open my mouth there, there was trouble, and uh, he sort of said to himself that right I'm not going to speak anymore. It's not worth it. It's trouble, trouble, trouble every time I open my mouth. And he said right that's it. I'm going to shut up. But then he said but when I do that a fire burns inside me and I have to speak. You see. So the point is that the prophetic impetus is the result. Someone is doing that because God is leading them to. Alright, that's the first point. Secondly, everything they say and do will be scriptural. They're not going to be saying things are wrong except that they're able to demonstrate that from the Bible. Alright? And then thirdly, that person is going to have his life substantially in line with God. Can you see what I mean? So that there's going to be a moral witness surrounding that person that he's mature in God all right and that his life is substantially in victory before the Lord that's the first type of person who will speak out correction wherever it's needed okay but the second type of person who'll do it is the person who likes doing it can you see the troublemaker and there are people who are cause trouble is not just the result of them serving the Lord. Trouble is what they are out for. Can you see that is the goal? 
they just want to be controversial. Can you see? All they want to do is to stir it. And of course, what you've got to do is, is, is you know, is that obviously we just have to, to learn to pick out and avoid people who are just troublemakers. And I mean, some people are like that. Uh, you know, they just, they get their kicks out of telling everyone they're wrong about, you know, everything. And with a person like that, when you get to know them, uh, within two minutes they've found something that they think God wants to correct you about. Can you see? It's unfailing. And it's the way they live. They are always correcting people. <clears throat> I mean, I've found sometimes in going to churches and, and speaking where I've never been before, I'm a stranger to everyone. And everyone is a stranger to me. And very often there's just one person who seems to know exactly what's wrong with your life and no sooner have you finished the sermon and, and the service is finished and they're sidling up to you with a word from the Lord. Can you see? They seem to get their kicks out of correcting you the whole time. Now, obviously, when you've got people uh, who are like that, then that is judging with wrong judgment, even though what they're saying is actually true. So then, let's just sort of sum up at that point. Jesus here, in saying judge not, that you be not judged, is not saying that we must never say that something or someone is wrong. That is ridiculous, because in Corinthians, Paul tells the church that it was their concern to be judging each other, so that if something was wrong, it could be put right. But the whole point is, true judgment is implemented out of a heart of love. And it will be implemented by people who are not guilty of the same thing in their own lives. Can you see the difference? Now, bearing that in mind, go to um, John, uh, the Gospel of John, and uh, chapter 8. And uh, I'll, I'll show you how this, this principle works. And, we can do this by actually sort of looking at the, uh, the story of the woman who was caught in adultery. Um, John chapter 8, we'll, we'll read the whole story first, alright? John chapter 8 and verse 2. Early in the morning Jesus came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such. What do you say about her? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Now that's the other verse we got to, you know, look at in regards to this. And once more he bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the eldest. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus looked up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and do not sin again. Now, what we're going to see here is a classic case of wrong judgment. 
Uh, this epitomizes what these guys are doing here, as I'll show you, epitomizes why Jesus said, Ju judge not that you be not judged. This is the kind of judgment that Jesus was speaking about, all right? Now then, the situation that we've got here is it is Jesus minding his own business, getting on with his, you know, sort of job and that, and uh, the Pharisees bring to him a woman who has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, what they are going to try... Incidentally, this story is unique in the New Testament. And the reason it's unique, it is the only occasion when the Pharisees, or the Sadducees, challenge Jesus on the basis of the law of Moses. <coughs> Throughout the Gospels, you'll find that every time that the Pharisees came against Jesus to try and prove he was wrong, they were coming at him because he was going against what they called the tradition of the elders. Now, the tradition of the elders were incredibly complex and numerous laws that had been worked out over the years by the Pharisees that weren't in the Old Testament, but were built on the Old Testament. So the point is, the tradition of the elders, that wasn't biblical teaching, it was purely tradition that the Pharisees over, I suppose, a few generations had built up. Now, they considered those traditions to be sacrosanct, that to go against their traditions was as bad as going against the Bible. But you see, the trouble was that in order to keep to their traditions, they had to go against the Bible. Now, Jesus came along and he broke as many tradition of the elders as he possibly could. I mean, it wasn't just that every now and then he, you know, he kind of accidentally broke one. He deliberately broke them. Uh, I mean, for instance, do you remember the man at the pool of Siloam who was blind, all right? And it was the Sabbath and Jesus healed him. Now then, there were lots and lots of things that you couldn't do on the Sabbath. And one of them was healing people on the Sabbath. If you read through the Gospels, you'll find that Jesus deliberately healed people on a Saturday. He could have got to them Friday night, or he could have waited till Sunday morning. He <laughs> deliberately healed them on the Saturday, because that went against the tradition of the elders. It didn't go against the Old Testament, but it went against the tradition of the elders. But when he healed this blind man on the Sabbath, when he healed blind men who, and it wasn't a Sabbath, he just kind of, you know, said, be healed, or laid hands on them, something like that. But when he met a blind man on the Sabbath who needed healing, do you know what he did? He spat on the ground and he made anointment with his spittle and the clay and rubbed it on his eyes. Do you remember that story? Now, why did Jesus choose to heal him like that on a Sabbath? I'll tell you. Because to spit on the ground and make spittle with clay, that broke the tradition of the elders. Can you see? Jesus deliberately provoked them. As I say, it wasn't just that he inadvertently broke a few here and there. He deliberately went out of his way to break as many of these traditions of the elders as he possibly could. And that's why the Pharisees got so mad, because Jesus was not submitting to the law of the Pharisees. But they always knew that he was submitting to the law of Moses, and that's why they couldn't get him. But this example was the one attempt they made to try and catch him out on the law of Moses. And what they're trying to do, by bringing this woman who's been uh, caught in adultery, what they're trying to do, the law of Moses, and they reminded Jesus of this very, very quickly, the law of Moses said that a woman caught, or someone caught in adultery should be stoned. And that was absolutely right. 
<coughs> now, what they wanted was one of two things. They either wanted Jesus to give the order to stone her. Now then, at the time, the Jews were occupied by the Romans. And because they were occupied by the Romans, the Jews did not have the power of capital punishment. All right? The Romans didn't allow them. That's why eventually they had to take Jesus to the Romans to get him killed. I mean, there were times when they tried to stone Jesus because they just got so mad with him, you know, that they forgot about, you know, Rome's law and just tried to kill him. But the point is, they wanted to get Jesus either firstly to say then stone her, which would have got him in trouble with the Romans. And of course, it would have got all the crowds thinking, oh, that's a bit rotten what Jesus did, wouldn't it? So they either wanted that result or they wanted Jesus to say, no, we're not going to stone her, and then they could have said, Jesus has gone against the law of Moses, now we've got him. Can you see? And it says here that they were trying to test him, because they were trying to trip him up. Now, the way that Jesus handles this is absolutely remarkable, all right? And it, it shows us things we need to know about what wrong judgment is. So then, they said, in the law of Moses, he commanded us to stone such. What do you say about her? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. All right, so they're trying to trip him up. But Jesus has seen straight through what they're doing. Now, I wonder, all you Columbo fans, or you Sherlock Holmes fans, what is the big giveaway that there's, there's, there's a put-up job here, there's something here that's not right. Any ideas? Well, I'll tell you. They bring a woman who has been caught in adultery. Now then, I may be wrong, but if I remember my biology lessons correctly, in order to commit adultery, you need two people. Where was the bloke? Can you see? Now, obviously, if this woman was caught in adultery, and there's no doubting she was, but the point is, they caught not just her, but the bloke. So, if they were being genuine, there'd be a bloke and a woman standing in front of Jesus, but there's not, there's a woman. Alright? So, you know, so, it's quite obvious they're up to, because they've let the bloke go, and they were very down on their women folk, alright? So they've let the bloke go and they've just brought the woman and they're going to let her carry the can. Jesus can see right through this, no problem. Now then, and it says, this is lovely, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground and then a bit later on in the story it says that he does it again. And, uh, you know, there, there are sort of loads of sort of guesses as to what it was he was writing. Um, <laughs> in the Greek, the emphasis in the Greek is not on what he was writing. The emphasis in the Greek is on his finger writing. All right. So the important thing about this isn't what he wrote, it was the fact that he was writing with his finger. Now, what does this mean? Well, do you remember in the Old Testament, Moses received the Ten Commandments and these tablets of stone they had the commandments on. How had those commandments been written on the stone? It said, with the finger of God. Now, who's God? Well, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. And the second person of the Trinity has always had a physical body, hasn't he? He got a human one at the Incarnation, but before them, throughout the Old Testament, the second person of the Trinity is always appearing, and he's physical. Now, the significance of Jesus 
kneeling down and writing with his finger on the ground. He's having a bit of fun with them. Well, I think with himself, because I think he knew that they wouldn't, you know, catch on at that time. But here they are trying to trip him up on the law of Moses. Now, here's Jesus writing on the ground, and he's saying to himself, my goodness, they're trying to trip me up on the Ten Commandments when I wrote them. Easy. And this is the point. Here is the lawgiver with the Pharisees trying to trip him up on the law that he gave. So that is the significance of Jesus, you know, writing on the ground with his finger. And, uh, and it says, as they continued to ask him, now it's nice that, as they continued to ask him, Jesus didn't answer them the first time. He let them rab it on a bit. Yeah, because he was having fun writing in the ground with his finger. You see, I mean, he wasn't going to jump to a, oh, sir, Pharisee, oh, sorry, sir, you know. And no, he was, he, he was going to let them wait. He had all the time in the world. He, he could see into their hearts, he knew what they were up to. He kept them waiting. And then he stood up. Now, this is what he said. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. <coughs> now, this is the other verse, which in conjunction with Matthew 7, verse 1, judge not that you be not judged. If somebody says something that you don't like, i.e. because it proves that you're wrong, first Matthew 7 verse 7, judge not and you'll be not judged, and if that doesn't make them feel guilty and shut them up, you sling in this one. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Who are you to say I'm wrong? Are you sinless or something? Now I want to show you that that is not what this verse means in the slightest. If this verse was meaning that you've got to be sinless before you can in any way carry out judgment and correct somebody, well then it would be absolutely stupid that God used John the Baptist to correct people, because John the Baptist was a sinner the same as the rest of us. It's not saying you've got to be sinless. What it means is it's a question of understanding a few things about the law of Moses and how their court system worked. The thing about cast the first stone was this. Under the Jewish law system, as given to Moses, the situation you had was that there were quite a few offences that meant death, that if you were found guilty of it, it was death. Now, in order to, to receive the death penalty on yourself, that could only happen on the evidence of two or three eyewitnesses. Israel's law in the Old Testament could never have someone put to death on circumstantial evidence. They could be convicted on circumstantial evidence, but no one could be put to death. That could only happen on the evidence of two or three eyewitnesses. Now, they had a very, very, or God built in a very, very good deterrent against perjury when it came to the death penalty. Because after all, anyone could say, oh, we saw him do it, and you can get false witnesses, can't you? If there's someone you didn't like, say, oh, we saw him commit adultery, and boom, he's out of the way. Now, what they did was this. If a capital uh, offence had been committed, and the person was found guilty on the evidence of people who saw it with their own eyes, who were saying, we saw them do it, then death was by stoning. And what happened was that the witnesses on whose evidence this person had been convicted, they had to start the stoning process before anyone else. Can you see? 
So there'd be a crowd of people, and this person was going to be killed by having rocks and stones thrown at them. The witnesses on whose evidence they'd been convicted, they had to throw the first stone. So you couldn't just perjure someone, tell lies, and then sort of leave him to the axeman or the hangman or something like that. You had to look them in the eye and cast the first stone. Can you see? What a beautiful deterrent that was against false witness. That, that if someone had lied and someone was being put to death, but you as a witness had lied, you'd have to look them in the eye as you yourself started the process of killing them. Now, can you see that was a really good deterrent? But the other built-in deterrent against perjury was that if you were discovered to have given false witness at a trial, so if you were discovered to have perjured yourself, whatever punishment the person underwent as a result of your evidence in court line, if you were found to have perjured yourself, you had the same punishment inflicted on you. So if someone had been found to have perjured themselves in a capital offence, if they had lied and on the basis of their false testimony someone had been stoned, then they would have been stoned. Whatever punishment had been given to the person who had been convicted on their perjured testimony, that would be the punishment that they had received. So there you see the way that it works in the law. So that this thing, when Jesus is saying, <coughs> cast the first stone, what he's saying is that these witnesses who have brought them because they've caught her in adultery, he's saying, right lads, okay, if we're going to do this according to the law of Moses, let's do it properly. Get ready to cast the first stone. Go get your rocks, boys, all right? But the other thing that's important to realize is that your testimony in an Old Testament Jewish kind of trial, your testimony could only be accepted as valid if you had never committed the same offense. Is it? If someone was known to be a thief, they could never give evidence in a court case accusing someone of theft. Can you see what I mean? So therefore, to be a witness to you know, a crime that had been committed, it meant that you had to be completely innocent of that crime. That you were not the same type of person as the person whose evidence uh, as the person that you are convicting, all right? So, the point is, if someone was seen to have stolen something, if the witness to that theft was himself a convicted thief, that witness wasn't acceptable, all right? And of course, the point is that if you've got someone who's given to crime, well, they're not honest people, are they? So then, what Jesus is doing here, uh, is doing here, is this. He's saying to them, right, you're coming to me, all right, and you're, you're going to throw out a test to me on the basis of the law of Moses. You're not going to win, lads, because I gave Moses the law. And he says, right, so we're going to do this properly, all right? So he says to them, right, you've got to stone her now, and you lot have got to cast the first stone, because you are the witnesses on whose testimony she's going to be put to death. But he reminds them 
that in order to qualify as witnesses in an adultery trial, they themselves had to be innocent of adultery. That is why Jesus said, him that is without sin cast the first stone. Not those of you who are sinless, but he's saying those of you who haven't committed this same sin that you're condemning her for, those of you who haven't committed adultery may proceed with the stoning. Now then, look what, and once more he bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now listen to this, he gives them a bit of time to think about it. He's back to the old writing. They're standing there, all right? They're looking at each other. They're starting to twitch. Look at verse 8. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the eldest. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. <coughs> so Jesus has said to them, Okay, lads, proceed. Start stoning her. But of course, remember that your testimony is only valid, and so you can only start casting the stones if you have never committed adultery. All right? That's what he said to them. And one by one, they vanish. Why do they vanish? I'll tell you. Each one of those men had committed adultery in the past. I am sure that they had done it very secretly. I am sure that no one else knew they committed adultery except the people they'd actually committed adultery with, because they were Pharisees. You know, I mean, you don't get caught in adultery if you're a Pharisee. <laughs> but Jesus was moving here in the word of knowledge. And when Jesus said this to them, Crikey, he knows! Now, they had two choices. They stayed there and argued and run the risk that Jesus might expose them publicly or quietly slip off and let's say no more about it. So what did they do? They quietly slipped off and let's say no more about it. So, off they go. Now, can you see that what's happening here is that they are judging with wrong judgment. Can you see? Here's a woman caught in adultery and according to the law of Moses she ought to have been put to death. The Pharisees come along to try and make this happen, but of course Jesus knows that they are doing it all wrong. The motives of their heart are completely askew. Um, incidentally, one thing that is quite nice there, when Jesus has kind of exposed these guys and says, look, I know that you've all committed adultery, not in so many words, all right, and they slip off. Look, it says, beginning with the eldest, they slipped, you know, they went away beginning with the eldest. And I love that picture because you've got the kind of the old ones. Now, even, even men who are in rebellion against God, a few years does give you wisdom. You're not quite so cocky when you get older. So the old men know that they're beaten. But of course, you've got the young cocky ones. <laughs> and they're the last to go. And of course... <laughs> You'd have eventually, eventually had Jesus and this woman, and there'd have been one Pharisee. 
Now, this would have been the last guy. He was just out of Pharisee College last term. Yeah. <laughs> you see, and despite the fact that because he's so young, he probably committed adultery last week, despite that fact, he's going to hold out for as long as he can, you know, the cockiness of youth. But even he has to eventually go. But, <coughs> but can you see that that is what wrong judgment is all about. That is judging people, that is condemning people in the wrong way. If correction is given with gentleness, and, and in James it says that if you're going to correct someone, do it very lightly lest you be tempted in the same way that, you know, the same way that they have been. I mean, you've got to go gingerly in correcting people because we're all prone to sin, alright? And the fact that you've got victory in one area of your life uh, is no guarantee that you're going to have victory for the rest of your life. You'll only have victory if you stay close to Jesus, and any of us can slip, can't we? We know that. You know, we've got to be so, so careful. So when it comes to correcting people, it's got to be done in that spirit of gentleness and watching out for yourself to make sure that you don't slip into it as well. But if correction is being given, if false teaching is being refuted, uh, because I know, I know that the church doesn't like this today, but it is a fact that the Bible demands that false teaching in the church is repudiated. That's got to be true. There is false teaching in the kingdom of God. That has got to be repudiated. You've got to do it on the basis of the word of God, but nevertheless, it's got to be spoken against, all right? So whether it's speaking out against false teaching amongst Christians or unbiblical practice amongst Christians, or whether it's kind of correcting individuals, and I'm assuming, everything I'm saying about this is assuming that in that instance, if you're doing it, you're doing it because God has led you to do it. Can you say? <clears throat> not just doing it because you think it's a good idea, but you know that that is what the Lord wants you to do, alright? So then, if you are doing that, and your motives are simply loyalty to God, and you have no wrong feelings in your heart at all towards the people you're speaking to, then go ahead. There is nothing wrong in that at all. That is the judgment that Paul wrote to Corinth, and says, come on lads, can we have a bit more judgment in your church? I mean, for heaven's sake, we've got a bloke living with his mum sexually. And he says, you should have kicked this bloke out years, you know, ages ago. So Paul says, come on, get your judgment together, all right? So if it's with right motives, fine, no problem. If, however, and this is where we've all got to be honest about our own hearts, if it's coming out of what I would call a critical spirit, Alright? That would be something, by, by critical spirit, I'm not talking about a demon of criticism. I'm just using it in, in the general human term. If you're just one of these people who loves <coughs> pulling things to bits, then that isn't a right judgement, even though what you're saying at that time might actually be correct according to the Bible. But nevertheless, if the attitude is just wanting to destroy and, and, and tear down. Uh, I mean, Paul, when, again, when he wrote to the Corinthians, I mean, they were in a terrible state. And he said, now look, lads, I don't want to use my authority to tear down. I want to build you up. Now, the two things to note there is that Paul only wanted to build them up. That was all he wanted. 
but he knew that in some things he had to tear them down. Now that's how you know if God's leading you. If all you want to do is build up, and yet you know that it's right to tear down, can you see? That's okay. That is right judgment. You're not doing it for the excitement. You're not doing it because you're going to be the centre of a controversy or something like that. You're doing it simply because you know it's got to be done, because that's the way the Lord is leading. That is right judgment. But with any of these other ulterior motives, whether it's wanting the excitement, being the centre of attention, or just because you don't like someone, or whatever, then uh, in that sense, that will be an indication of wrong judgment. I think I've spoken here before about this some, some years ago when I was um, in Suffolk, there was a, a strict Baptist church that I used to go and preach at sometime. And if I was ever passing, you know, like, in that neck of the woods, like, on a Sunday night, I'd, I'd go along to their service. And uh, I did this a few times, so I could be there if I wasn't actually speaking. And uh, they tended to have regular outside speakers come in. And there was one young lad there who used to come. And I, I heard him about three times. Now, each time I heard him, it didn't matter what his subject was, he would always manage to get an incredibly vehement attack against Catholics, against the Catholic Church. And what used to amaze me, everyone thought how brave he was, or oh, what a brave, uncompromising young speaker. And I remember thinking to myself, you're a coward, mate. When you've gone and preached that at a Catholic church, then I'll believe you're brave. Because, of course, if you're preaching against Catholics in a strict <coughs> Baptist church in Suffolk, I mean, you're a hero. No question about it. They all hate the Catholic Church. But can you see what was happening there? What he was saying was right. But his heart was so wrong. I mean, it was just open day on Catholics because he was a strict Baptist. Now, can you see that is wrong judgment? However, it is right and good that people do demonstrate from the Bible why Catholicism is so wrong and that goes for Anglicanism as well can you see it's all to do with the motives now I'd put money down if I was a gambling man which of course I'm not but <coughs> I would put money down on the fact that that young man if while he'd have been preaching a group of Christians who were Catholics came into that church he wouldn't have had fellowship with them he wouldn't have done alright and that would have shown that he had something personal against people in the Catholic Church. That would indicate wrong judgment. Do you remember a few weeks ago, Ian Paisley, at the, um, the European Common Market, when the Pope was there? That is quite clearly personal resentment and antipathy. Can you see? There's no question about that. Now, I mean, I think he says something about the Pope being of the spirit of Antichrist. Well, when he says that, he's absolutely right, the Pope is. But the way he did it demonstrated that what was motivating him wasn't the love of God and the love of truth, it was a hatred of Catholics. And of course for Paisley, it's finally not even for theological reasons. Paisley is a believer, I've no doubts about that, he's a believer. But can you see, it's, you can be speaking that which is true, but for reasons other than the love of the truth and wanting the best for people. So the thing is, I mean, you know what I think of Catholicism, for instance. You know what I think of, of you know, false teaching. 
But it doesn't bother me in the slightest to have fellowship with believers who are in the Catholic Church. Can you see the difference? The issue is it's not a personal thing. It's fighting for the truth of God's word. It's fighting for what Jesus wants. It's not some kind of personal vendetta against people. And can you see that's another way to sort out if someone is doing a correction thing. You've got to ask yourself, are they doing it from the right motives? Is, is, is this because of the love of the truth? Is this out of loyalty to Jesus? Or is this just someone taking out their frustrations on people or something they just don't happen to like? So <coughs> that is what is the all-important thing in this. The point about judgment is that it's a question of motive. It's a question of what is motivating us to do it. If you correct somebody, are you trying to win back your brother, as the Bible says? Or are you trying to make him squirm? Are you trying to make him realise how unspiritual you think he is? Can you see? Or are you trying to win him back? Can you see? So the point is, there is a time to be negative. Of course there is. This, all, all this thing going I mean, the charismatic movement is into positive, 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 isn't it? You mustn't ever say anything negative. That is rubbish. You read some of the negative things that Jesus said. You read some of the negative things that there are in the Bible. Now the point is, the Bible is only negative because there is never a point beyond which someone can't be put right with God. So the Bible will say something is wrong only because it can be put right, you see. But the Bible will not hesitate to say that something is wrong. So there's a time for us to be negative, that's right, but on the condition that our motives is that we're trying to bring those people through to the positive, that we're only doing it out of love for Jesus and therefore for the good <coughs> of the people we're speaking to. When John the Baptist called the Pharisees a brood of vipers, he did that for their own good. Good. He wasn't just thinking, right, I've got a lovely chance to humiliate them in front of the crowd. He did that for their own good, because for the Pharisees, and Jesus took the same tactics, the Pharisees were so far gone, they were so hardened in their hearts, that only shock tactics could have got through to them. So Jesus used shock tactics, and some of them did get converted, alright. But the point is, those shock tactics were being used out of love, for those people, not in some effort to just slam them and uh, humiliate them or show them up. The last point, all right, go to, again in 1 Corinthians, go to, um, I think we want chapter 8, <coughs> chapter 11, sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And in verse 31, this was, um, the context of this is that Paul is, um, you know, the Corinthians had gone bananas at their, their love feast at their church. They were turning it into a drunken orgy. I mean, what should have been their church meal, or communion, all right, but what should have been their church meal, they turned into an orgy, and Paul's been writing to them saying, now look, this has got to stop. <coughs> and he says that 
that is, he says, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now this is talking about God's judgment on believers. Not anyone losing their salvation, but God getting tough with uh, his children because they're so out of order. And he says, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But look what he says, but if we judged ourselves truly, we should not be judged, alright? But when we are judged by the Lord, we are chastened so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So what we've seen is, there is a wrong way of judging people. We mustn't do that. And if we are doing it, or if we have done, done that, we've got to put that right. But there is a right way in which we must judge each other. But the condition of it, as I've been saying, and this verse, alright, kind of just sews it all up so beautifully. The condition for judging other people in the right way is that we are constantly judging ourselves. Can you see? Paul says, if we judged ourselves truly, we should not be judged. So the thing is, let us not balk at correction when it's needed. Let us not balk at speaking out against that which is wrong even in the kingdom of God. But let's make sure that we are judging ourselves all the time and know that when we're doing that, it's not for any other motive than our love for Jesus, our love for the truth of God's word, and our love and concern for those people in error. But judging yourself will mean that you'll spend your days not looking for specks in other people's eyes. You won't be looking for them you'll be concentrating on keeping logs out of your own eyes. And when you're doing that, then you are ready, if God so shows you, to deal with a speck somewhere else. But that's the point. Don't go looking for specks in other people's eyes, but we have got to concentrate that there aren't any logs on our own. If we are doing that, then there can be the genuine and correct kind of judging that we must be doing, but we won't be judging in the way that Jesus said we mustn't judge, the way that the Pharisees did. And, uh, but get it clear in your head, the next time that someone says to you, it's wrong to judge because you've said something they don't like, just say to them, then why are you judging me? And see, it's interesting, isn't it? And see what happens. Uh, does, does that... <coughs> okay. Yeah. <coughs> Yeah. Again, yeah. 
Oh yeah, yeah. I think Blinder is speaking about an experience that Bella had once, where you actually sort of uh, suggested that something might be wrong at a meeting, and you were immediately put in your place by being told you've got a critical spirit. Now that is exactly that is exactly the same principle. It's hooking out, you know, you mustn't judge us to get away with murder. Um, I mean, some people are never happy. It doesn't matter where they go. That you know, they will always find something wrong. That is wrong. But, I mean, if you have been to some... I mean, say someone has said, come along to this meeting that's on. And incidentally, the reason that I don't go to very many is precisely <coughs> because I get fed up going to Christian meetings that aren't right. And they are unbiblical. And it is a load of... And very often it is. All right. I don't bother to go anymore because then I don't get people saying, oh, did you enjoy that? And I say, no, I hated it. And they say, oh, you're being critical, aren't you? So, I mean, in fact, I just don't go to very many at all. I think we've got to be honest. I mean, we mustn't, as I say, get into a situation where we're criticising for the sake of criticising, all right? But I do not see any virtue. I mean, say you've been along to a meeting, um, and sort of maybe, uh, I mean, a bloke up the front has bored everyone stupid for an hour, uh, then works you up to a frenzy to get you up the front and then proceeds to push you all over. I don't think we have to come out of meetings like that saying, oh, wasn't that wonderful? Because I think it's hideous. And I mean that. I think it's hideous. Um, I mean, some of the things going on out there, you know, I mean, I've been to meetings. I mean, I, I've seen people dragged up to the front of meetings and bullied about things. You know, the, like the blokes up the front using manipulative powers. Um, I mean, saw so some of you, you know, a while back were at a thing, and I mean, we were all supposed to put our hands up about something, because, you know, an appeal had been made, no one had put their hands up to get converted, on came the manipulation techniques. Right, well, I want all, who's a Christian here? All the Christians put their hands in the air. And I sat there with my arms folded, you see. I'm not going to take part in that. And if someone asks me what I think about it, I'm going to tell them. Manipulation is of the devil. When you're being used to preach the gospel, you don't need to manipulate people. You don't need all this business about trying to get hands in the air. You don't need it. People get converted because God is working in them, and if they want to. So, therefore, I think that the point is that we, we've got to be honest. We've got to run the risk of speaking out against what we think is wrong. But we've got to be watching ourselves all the time that it is constructive criticism as opposed to a critical spirit. Can you see what I mean? So again, it's one of those things, someone could come out of a meeting and say that was awful. And they could be doing it in a sinful way. Someone else could come out of a meeting and say that was awful and they're merely telling the truth. But how do you uh, know what is the <coughs> difference? Because I come out of various mm. meetings like this and say, like this? Like this? This yeah, one? Like, I'm not home tonight. Oh. Say, that was a load of rubbish. And, right. and, I, and then I'll say, oh, well, I'm not going to go anymore. Because every time I come out, I grumble about it. Mm. I'm not going to go and... I've no intention of going up to any of the people there and making any suggestions. It's just getting a grumble out. I mean, is that sinning? Because how do I know if it's... You know, out of right or wrong motives, I'm just, to me, I'm telling the <coughs> Well, yeah, how can I say, I mean, if, say, you go to the pictures and see a film, all right, and uh, you come out the cinema and say, well, what, what, what an atrocious film. I mean, I, I don't think that is the sin of complaining. 
Can you see what I mean? You're, you're stating a fact. Um, in the same way that if you go and see a film and you come out saying, wow, what a fantastic film, you're simply, as it were, giving the, the, the film the prey. You are responding. You thought, wow, that was great. And you're expressing it. If you go and see a really a boring, grossy film that was a thorough disappointment and two hours of boredom, well, I mean, you're hardly going to come out of the cinema singing the praises of that film and recommending it to everyone, are you? Now, in ex I mean, I know it's slightly different, but if you've gone along to a Christian gathering or whatever, I mean, if, if you come out and, and you've sat there and you've thought, good heavens, what has this got to do with Christianity? I don't see that one has therefore got to come out uh, you know, saying, oh, oh, wasn't that marvellous? Praise the Lord, you know. And, and I've spoken to so many Christians who, in the context of, say, a situation like that, I mean, they all seem right in it, you see, and they come out meeting, oh, wasn't that marvellous? Praise the Lord, and stuff like that. And I've spoken to them afterwards, all right, and when they've realised that I'm not going to tell them that it's wrong to judge, they're honest and they think it's terrible. And I think, so why did you sit there joining in with it? And why did you come out saying, oh, what a fantastic meeting? And the reason is because people are giving in to peer pressure. I mean, if, if, if more believers were ready to stand up and say, look, we don't mind you praying for people to be healed, but will you stop pushing them over? I'll tell you, if some of these guys were at a meeting where a hundred Christians stood up and said, Oi, oi, now look, come on, there's no need to push him over. <laughs> Can you imagine a whole congregation and saying, I saw that, you pushed him over. <laughs> I mean, I've been at meetings, I'm not joking, where, I mean, I've, they've had so much trouble getting people over, I've wondered whether they're going to bring on someone to crouch down <laughs> behind their knees. You know, and just a little shove does it. I'm not joking. If we were to stand up and let our voice be heard about this, why is it that, you know, coming back to what I said earlier, I and many other, you know, other people, we sat in a meeting and we heard a highly respected minister lying. And yet when I tried to do something about that, not because I want to pound him into the ground, not because I want a pound of flesh. What's in it for me? I mean, most, you know, sort of people I know think I'm the biggest troublemaker they've ever met anyway. They've buried me already. What's in it for me? More rumours about me. <coughs> it's because I care. I, you know, that bloke, if he got right with God in that area of his life, how much more blessed might he be? But he's going around telling lies and I know for a fact there are loads of people who know that he's going around telling lies. And all they do are sing the praises of how wonderfully God uses him. Now, God does use him wonderfully. Praise the Lord. I'm not saying God doesn't use him wonderfully. But how much more wonderfully would God use him if he wasn't going around lying? Now, can you see? We've got to be honest about things like this. Not campaigns against people or anything like that. But, but you know, I suppose uh, the ex-socialist coming out in me. If the Christian people spoke up a bit, and I do wish they would, if the Christian people spoke up a bit more, then believe me, the Christian scene out there, the leaders who are procreating it for their own ends, keeping it going for their own ends, they're really going to have to think twice, aren't they? 
If the suckers stop following them blindly, they're going to have to rethink their methods. And I mean, it's like, you know, again, I'm an ex-socialist, uh, you know, I say ex, but uh, topical. Look what the Labour Party's doing. Rethinking everything. Everything is up for grabs, everything is up for rethink. I want to see that in the Kingdom of God. I want to see every church, I want to see every fellowship, I want to see us continue to do it because we are doing it all the time say there are no sacred cows everything is up for grabs anything that we're doing that we find to be not based on the scripture it's out and anything that we find the bible says we should be doing and we're not doing it's in and if it goes against everything we've ever stood for so what our concern is what jesus wants and we know what jesus wants by reading the bible yeah, I would like to see the people speak up. But I think that what happens is that because so few speak up, so few speak their mind, I agree, they do look like complainers. Yes, I agree. Now, maybe some of them are, and maybe even when we are complaining legitimately, <coughs> there's still an element of, of complaint in our hearts that we need to still put right with God. You can't wait till you're perfect before you do something. That's ridiculous, or none of us would do anything at all. But yeah, I would like to see the people speak. Um, you know, I think that for many people, if they actually, you know, sort of say, went up to their leaders and say, look, um, you know, can, can we have speakers in who are interesting, please? Um, could brother so-and-so stop doing the Bible studies, please? Because he sends everyone to sleep. Um, or could such and such, you know, stop coming in and doing teaching? Because none of us understand a word that he's saying. Or don't say that he can't come because you ask him to, to, to keep the words in order. Yeah, can you say, if we spoke up about things like this, I think it could be that there are lots of people on the Christian scene in leadership. I think they're probably genuinely doing their best. But apathy and the line of least resistance is what we're best at. We're sinners. And sometimes it's only when leaders get a jolly good shaking from their people that they do think twice about what they're doing. And there are lots of people out there that if they got a good shaking, they'd be the first to say, oh, yeah, I'm wrong about that. Right, lads, we're going to make some changes here. Get back to what the Bible says. But if no one corrects them, how are they going to do it? Can you see? I mean, sort of say, um, say a thread of totally unbiblical teaching came into what I teach you, and that there was a whole area in regards to what I teach that wasn't scriptural. Now, obviously, I, you know, in that situation, even though I'm saying something that isn't scriptural, obviously I think it is, or I wouldn't be saying it. And what it would mean is I've got it wrong. Now, how am I to have a hope of seeing that I've got it wrong if people don't say, that's not scriptural, Beresford, and, and to have it out with me? I don't mean a big fight, I don't mean a confrontation, but say, right, let's thrash this out. Can you see, if we were willing to do this to each other, my goodness, it would be wonderful. Yeah, I think, it, yeah, I, I think it's good. We've got to be honest. We've got to be honest. Watch the motives, yes. Always keep your motives in check. But uh, I think if... Excuse me, 